How many of you have ever read a book or several books on providence? Have you ever read The Mystery of Providence by Thomas Watson? No? The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. A few takers on that one. Do you good? Great, good. Brooks is a little sweeter than, uh, let's see, that was Boston, wasn't it? Which one did, which one did Brooks write? Huh? That is Brooks. Huh? No, but one on Providence. Mute Christian is, is Brooks. Oh, the lot, the lot. Thomas Boston, the uh, the crook in the lot. <clears throat> I want to use an illustration this morning uh, that I, I will draw a metaphor from to carry the thought, but it's not from any of those books on Providence. How many of you have ever read uh, Robinson Crusoe? You should read it. It's not as technically accurate as uh, any of the books that I mentioned before. Daniel Defoe was a minister, Presbyterian minister, but mm, <clears throat> perhaps not so schooled in uh, the Christian life as he should have been. But he was a fantastic writer. Storyteller may be second to very few others. So I recommend it. Let's pray. I'll give you an introduction. We'll be off and running. Lord, we give you thanks for our time together, and we want to profit from now. We have profited from the reading of your word and the praying of your word and the singing of your word because we've combined what we've heard with faith. It's the only reason we could profit from it. And if we've, if we've not profited, our soul is not profited, it's, it's simply because we haven't combined what we heard with faith. It's as simple as that. We didn't receive God into the soul by faith. When there's no, there's a giving, but when there's no receiving by faith, there can be no returns, not, not any good ones. Help us to learn it, Lord. The return now that we want to learn or the, 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 the part of the process that we want to learn now this morning is a process of praying, the means of grace that you have ordained by which we, our soul, would learn to commune with God. We don't want to just call it talking to God. We don't want to just call it talking with God so much. Certainly don't want to talk, call it talking at God. But prayer is more than communication. It's more than words. True prayer is uh, communion. It goes beyond words, beyond mere recitation of words or the offer of words. And there is no greater time that prayer is more needed than when trouble comes. When intense trouble comes, we need, we need more than a foxhole prayer. Lord, help me. And then we go back on whatever promise we made 
when we pray. May we learn commune with God in prayer this morning in a way in which we haven't before. And may we think carefully about the life of the soul and, and, God, and God's providence in the life of our souls and bringing us into communion. Awakening our soul from sleepiness and dull-heartedness. But more than that, they're, they're, the majority of people in this room now are already awakened. They're, they're not as many dull hearted believers in this room as there used to be. I used to be among the dull hearted. You awakened. I'm keenly awakened to the glories of God. I'm keenly awakened to uh, the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm keen, keenly awakened to the deceitfulness of my own heart. I'm keenly awakened to the magnitude of the love of God. But oh Lord for more. And, oh, Lord, how, how wonderfully you use the deepest difficulty in our lives to cause us to grow more deeply with you. Cause our souls to expand, run in the way of your commands. Not just walk, but run run in the path of your commands. And that's what we pray this morning. Some need to be awakened. And, and, and others, most others in this room, simply need to put a, have, a, have a sweet taste of God put upon their souls to grow, to increase in faith, to increase in grace, to increase in communion, because they're already in communion. And that's what we pray this morning would take place. Some some awakening to the glory and some increase. We pray that both would take place. In Jesus' name, amen. Caleb, have you ever even heard of Robinson Crusoe? Not Swiss Family Robinson. That's not the book. The adventures of Robinson Crusoe are way high up there. How old are you, Caleb? Ten? Be ten. <clears throat> How many other double digits we got in here? Well, if you're not a if you're an adult, hold your hand down. The adventures of Robinson Crusoe are what double-digit boys and girls are made of. They're what, they're what, they're, that's what you dream, the kind of adventures that you would dream to have one day. But they are more. Robinson Crusoe is far more than adventures for the believing soul. For the believing soul, there is... A, 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 a working of the path of God in the providence of God in the life of a man. You'd, you'd call him like Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven always gets his man. Francis Thompson wrote that wonderful poem. 
He chased me through the labyrinth of ways. You know the poem. There's a labyrinth of providence in the life of Robinson Crusoe. And after years, decades, decades of the most difficult providence you could imagine, finally, Robinson Crusoe comes to faith. And then he becomes useful in the life of primarily one man. Interesting. Interesting story. So if we're thoughtful, Robinson Crusoe could be for us a careful study of providence in which to find ourselves. This providence that God has prepared for David is one in which to find ourselves. I can't find you for your sake. I can point. But for me to tell you your specific problem and to name it and to say, this is your problem, go and correct it. That's the wrong thing for me to do. It's the wrong thing for any of us to do. None of us know precisely what's in the other's heart. We have to be careful. We have to be thoughtful when a person undergoes hard providences or when a friend is in the throes of hard providences to come alongside them primarily as an encourager to make the best use of this deep possible. Against all the godly counsel Robinson Crusoe received, he defies his parents, defies his godly mother, defies his godly father, and he sets out to sea. On his first voyage, the ship wrecks in a storm. But young Crusoe, so determined to be at sea, so determined to go at sea, to, to live at sea, he sets out again on another voyage. This journey also ends in a disaster when pirates overtake the ship and he winds up being sold to a moor and spends two years as a slave in Africa. Two years later, Crusoe escapes in a boat with a boy named Zuri. Just off the west coast of Africa, a captain, the captain of a Portuguese ship, rescues Robinson Crusoe and a young African named Zuri. Robinson Crusoe doesn't know himself, not very well, doesn't know God. He doesn't know mercy if he, if he was just blindsided by any mercy. So he winds up selling this young black man into slavery. He takes the money, sails to Brazil, and goes and binds a little plantation with the money he got from selling Zuri. He becomes rich, very wealthy. He's a hard worker. He's an investor. He, his plantation grows, and he, he develops a scheme, this idea to become even richer by participating in bringing slaves from Africa. So he gets on board a ship one day and uh, participates in this expedition to go and 
purchased slaves from Africa. But Providence frowns, and the ship is lost in a violent storm about 40 miles off the coast of Venezuela. Only Crusoe, the captain's dogs, and captain's two cats are, are spared in the storm. Everybody else loses their life. Racked with despair, Robin Crusoe salvages the guns and the ammo and, and uh, the tools, all the tools that he can get, and all the supplies from the ship, and he, and he builds a compound next to a cave he discovers in a hillside. And there he lives for 25 years by himself, all alone on, a, on this island, marooned, stranded on a deserted island for 25 years. A hard life. Uh, to keep his sanity... Robinson Crusoe develops a journal. He begins journaling. Each day he records every task he's done, everything from the tools that he makes, the new tools that he makes, everything from the crops that he grows, the failures that he undergoes, the successes, everything he does, he records in his journal with meticulous detail for someone to read in the future. Primarily Robinson Crusoe. One day, one evening, he goes to bed, and he goes to bed with some kind of fever. He's developed from some illness he's gotten from the island. The fever lasts for a long time, weeks, seems like, days, maybe weeks. He's no one to help him, no one even to give him a cup of cold water. He's absolutely certain this will be the end of his life. He knows he's going to die. Crusoe had lived a sailor's life with all the sins and all the vices of a sailor. His near-death illness causes him to think of the life he'd given up, live with his godly parents, his godly daddy, his godly mama. Causes him to reflect back over every providence that God had orchestrate in his life up to that point. He ponders the multitude of God's infinitely wide, wise prominence guiding him through the whole of life to bring him to this very place that evening to resign himself entirely to God. To trust God for the first time in his life. He opens a Bible he found in the ship's chest, and it lands on what Charles Spurgeon calls Robinson Crusoe's text. Do you know it? Uh, Spurgeon preached a famous sermon on the Robinson Crusoe's text. Help! That was Robinson Crusoe's response. The text, the text is Psalm 55. 50 verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. After 25 years marooned on an island, lived hard life by himself, now sick almost to death and he calls on God that very night, help God. 
and God delivers him from what? From himself. From himself, of course. That prayer, God help, marks the conversion uh, and forever after his conversion, forever after, Robin Crusoe possesses hope in God. Not without difficulty, but he possesses hope, hope in God. Daniel Defoe in this book paints as vivid a picture of running from God, making shipwreck of our lives, and drifting aimlessly through the whole life And finally, because we won't give up our own will and our own ways for the will and ways of God, we live like castaways. And we care for nobody, and nobody cares for us because we've rejected God. Wow, what a story. It's David's story. Except he chooses God's will and God's ways over his own. He does not drift aimlessly, for at least for the most of his life. There's some aimless drifting. And for a while, he does live like the castaway, not caring about anybody and not being cared for by anybody, not even his own family, not even his own people. But here in this psalm, David learns to sing the song, the soul's best song in the face of some of his greatest difficulties. Are you learning to sing the soul's best song in the face of life's difficulties? Life's deeds, its struggles, its adversities, all of its difficulties. David might make shipwreck of his life and drift aimlessly, but he exchanges his own will for the will of God. And then what takes place? What takes place at the end of this psalm, verse 7 and 8? What takes place? He cares deeply. As deeply as a person can care, he cares for the souls of other people to be rescued from their own sin and unbelief. That's the, that's the, flow, of, that's the flow of thought in the song. He starts out with trouble. He, then, he winds up caring for people more than he did beforehand. It is the purpose of God in struggles. For us to live for the glory of God and the good of others. Not like individualistic, self-centered American Christians. We need to stop that. Out for the bucket list of things to satisfy ourselves. And live for the glory of God and the good of others. Rescuing other people from They're besetting sins and weaknesses. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 130 as we seek to unpack part two of our message now, learning to sing the song of the soul's best comfort. I'll read it once again. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be regarded as God. This is not knee-knocking fear. This is a delightful fear in God, a delightful regard for God above all others. That's the kind of fear he's describing here. Mercy, a taste of mercy, produces a delightful regard for God, not knee-knocking fear. If you still have knee-knocking fear, something's, something's gone astray. Something's gone awry. You haven't tasted mercy. You may have thought you tasted mercy, but you've tasted no mercy if there's still knee-knocking fear. I'll wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Oh, people of God. You hear the way Danny describes? It's, it's simply what Paul says in two places in the New Testament and what Jesus teaches. Galatians chapter 3. We're the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God. It's not a replacement of Israel, for goodness sake, like we've been told. It's it's the fulfillment of Israel. No replacement. A fulfillment. The church is the fulfillment of Israel. It's what God intended all along. Oh, covenant people, hope in the Lord. For with you, the Lord is steadfast love, mercy, covenant love and with him is abundant redemption he shall most certainly redeem his people from all their iniquities the depth of difficulties some difficulties is so great that it that we never touch the bottom you ever been in such difficulty as that When will this ever end? I I can't touch bottom. I don't know where bottom is. These difficulties had the capacity to cast long shadows over the whole of life. Long shadows over the whole of your family life. Long shadows over the whole of all kinds of life. Church life. Such intense difficulties cast some people down and they become so discouraged they never rise above their trouble for the rest of their lives. They never rise above it. For them, the hand of God is in providence is veiled. They can't see what God is doing. They don't consider what God is doing. They never see anything but the thing that smote them right in the noggin. Slap them into the face. Knock their breath out. That's the only thing they can see. It's the only thing they chart. It's the only thing they talk about. What this person did to me. What this person took from me. They never consider the hand of God 
underneath the hand that smote them. They can't see God's hand at work in their lives over the course of a long period of time. 25 years, for goodness sake, for Robinson Crusoe before he really makes any sins out of anything. It's a long time after leaving home. Will it take that long for you? Thank God it hasn't taken that long for me, but it took way too long. Way too long. They can't see God at work. So they live in unbelief for the rest of their lives. Only the heart and only the eye of faith can see God at work, shaping our life, shaping our relationships, and directing our course to experience His deliverance of our lives for the sake of His glory and the good of everybody. That's the purpose of it. That's the purpose here, you see. Isn't it? You make that connection. He's brought this providence so that I will not be capsized by these sins, this unbelief, so that I'll grow in the experience of grace and faith and be useful for the church. I'll be useful for eternity, not just time. I'll give myself to something. I'll give all my resources to something that matters for eternity. I'll build the kingdom. I'll rescue sinners from destruction. Psalm 130 is a short psalm. And it's easy to chart the flow of thought to keep us from being so self-consumed. Our greatest interest must not be collecting high experiences of common grace to serve a bucket list. Careful. I'm not opposed to common grace. I'm not opposed to high experiences of common grace. But, but I'm just saying, you have to be careful not to live upon common grace. That's what I'm saying to you. Be capsized. You drift aimlessly through life, living that way. Our greatest interest must be, as verse 7 and 8 says, in, sh- in receiving mercy in order to show mercy. That's it, isn't it? How does David pour mercy out on other people in great need? He said these people are in sin. Redeem Israel from all their sin. They're sinners. We're sinners. We're all sinners. We're all rotten sinners. And without a taste of mercy, I'll condemn you and you'll condemn me. And we'll do nobody in this room or anybody, anybody else in this community any good if we live that way. These verses are here to prevent us from being self-consumed and self-serving. God designed soul depths for soul for self-discovery. Self-discovery is the instrument God uses to bring about change. 
the needed change to keep us from being self-consumed and self-serving all our lives. Change takes place from verse 1 to verse 7. In David's life, he has a different view of God. He has a different view of himself. He's discovered what's in the heart of God. He's discovered what's in his own heart. He's no longer standing upon his own goodness. He stands on God's goodness alone. That was not the case in former days for David. That's what capsized him, wasn't it? He lived upon his own righteousness. He's exalted himself above others. He has no interest to do the greatest good to a Bathsheba or Uriah or Bathsheba's mom and daddy. Imagine the struggles that Bathsheba's mom and daddy lived with for the rest of their lives. Imagine the struggles that Uriah's parents and his brothers and his sisters and his cousins lived with for the rest of their lives. Because they were self-concerned. But he's not self-consumed here. He's undergone changes. God designs difficult circumstances for us to discover what holds us back. What keeps us upon ourselves. What imprisons us. I can't tell you you're in prison and it do you any good. Thursday night, you asked. I didn't tell. I said, you have to discover it for yourself. Take that. This is the way you're living. We do that kind of thing when we when we charge one another with certain sins instead of aiding someone in the process of self-discovery. Because along with self-discovery, you're also discovering what's in the heart of God. I can point you to the experience of what's in the heart of God. I can point you to the grace of God. I can point you to the love of God. But I, and I can tell you about it, but I can't experience it for you. And unless you have the experience of cussing, the love of God in Christ, in the midst of your struggles, you won't learn, you won't grow. You'll still be dependent upon what you can see. You'll still live upon what you can see. And you'll, you'll be self-consumed and not interested in serving others for their best good. God designs difficult circumstances for us to discover what imprisons us. What keeps us back? What holds us? What hinders us from doing the greatest good for the glory of God in other people's lives? He designed difficult relationships for discover not what we need to set boundaries to keep people from using us or from hurting us. He designed difficult relationships for us to discover the boundaries we've already set that keeps us from doing good to others. Does that make sense to you? Nobody needs to set boundaries in here. The boundaries are set by God. And God gives grace and love and mercy to do good. And wisdom to do good.
God's love is boundaryless. And with the experience of a boundless, free love in God, I can do good and persevere to do good to people who have yipsed me and chewed me up and spit me out and wish I were dead. And so can we all. And so should we all as a church when we learn from our troubles. God designs difficult relationships for discover boundaries we've already set that keeps us from helping others to live upon God. Self-imposed boundaries are opposed to living by mercy and showing mercy. I hope we see that. I hope we grasp that. God, we set way too many boundaries. God sets none. He gives us His Ten Commandments to guide us in doing good. He gives us His moral law to guide us in doing good. But those are for the greatest good of the other people. Not withholding good. Paul is stoned and they left for dead. He gets up and going back into the same city to get the same treatment of the people who stoned him just before. His friends say, wait, 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 Paul. Does Paul set boundaries? They're going to hurt me. I can't go back. No, he sets no boundaries. He's willing to give all. He pours himself out like a drink offering for the sake of other people. He gives and gives and gives. And it's my belief that the thorn in the flesh is that he struggles for the first time in his life with the fact that people don't care about Christ. People don't care how much he's given for the sake of Christ. And so he struggles for the first time. I, I wonder if I've done the right thing. I should go and set boundaries now. That's my belief about what this, the thorn in the flesh is because of the context in which the thorn of the flesh comes after a recitation of all those struggles that he has in chapter 10. Nights in the deep stone, 40, 50 lashes minus one. Famine, naked. My goodness, Paul, all that struggling. And you're willing to do it again. Well, here's this one time I, was st- I stopped being willing. I was struggling because people didn't care. Church in Corinth certainly didn't care. I was struggling giving myself so much in ministry to other people. But then he gets over himself, doesn't he? No boundaries. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. You don't have to live setting boundaries, doing good. Don't worry. Strength is sufficient for your weaknesses. So when we encounter trouble, we must learn like David and like Robinson Crusoe to trace God's infinitely wise providence through life to resign ourselves to delight in God as God 
and to live by mercy to rescue others from the prison of their own sin. That's what we are, church. We're we're on a rescue mission to rescue people from being in prison to their own sin, their own unbelief. Can I participate in the rescue mission if I'm still imprisoned? Can't do it, can I? Can I, can I participate in the rescue mission if I'm so worried about being hurt? I'm so concerned that I have to protect myself. Now, I want, I want to tell you this. I'll go to bat for you. I'll, I'll try to keep you safe, you know. I'll do everything I can to prevent you from being hurt. But I don't regard it to be my job to prevent myself from being hurt or used. Soul depths are designed for us to grow in prayer and commune with God and others to push past all our self-imposed, self-protected boundaries. Lord, rescue your people. Lord, rescue your people. In all of life's troubles, are you discovering that your own unbelief imprisons you? In this prison of self-protection, you can neither live for the glory of God nor the good of others. In life's troubles, are you learning to get outside yourself? That's what troubles are designed for, to take us out of ourselves. Are you growing through your daily struggles? Are you growing in prayer and laying your soul out to God, just laying whole soul out to God. Now, I know sometimes it's important and helpful to lay our souls out for one another. I'm not opposed to counsel. But you see, this passage doesn't say, go lay your soul out to your elders first. It doesn't say, go lay your soul out to your friends first. David lays his soul out to God in prayer. And we must learn to pray as a sufficient means of grace for God to meet our needs when we're in the depths of trouble. I don't discount the need for one another to help. But this passage is about learning to grow in prayer. Prayer is so very necessary for self-discovery and growth in holiness and growth in communion with God and growth in one another. Winslow, as only Winslow says, can say, he says that at no other time does the life of God in our soul prove itself than when we pray in response to trouble. Unbelievers don't pray to God for help in times of trouble. Do you hear him? At no other time does God, does a life of God in our soul 
manifest itself, prove itself, than when we pray in response to trouble. The life of God asserts itself in reality and power in response to the trials God designs. I need that. Thank you, Winslow. I need Winslow. We all need Winslow. Preparing depths for us is God's way of awakening our dull heart due to living upon good circumstances and easy relationships. And we come to expect it. And we complain when we don't have it. Easy, easy life, the good life. When trouble comes during uh, to you, do you intend to grow through it and live upon God no matter how difficult the circumstance and no matter how hard the relationship? Do you intend to grow by it? That'd be a lesson to learn from this, these two verses, from this, these eight verses. When trouble comes during your day when, or when difficulty arises in a relationship, how do you respond? Do you complain or do you pray and seek God's help? It's an easy thing to do, just a knee-jerk response to complain instead of praying. Do you tell everyone how difficult your friend is, or do you pray and seek help? When trouble comes, what does your countenance look like? If your countenance falls, does it remain fallen? Do you, do you consider it? Do you talk at the end of the day? Or did, were you able to pray through and find help so as not to be torqued off at the end of the day. We shouldn't be torqued off for that long. But I understand. You get the wind knocked out of you. I get it. And sometimes the first knee-jerk reaction is an unbelief, and you're mad, and, you know, you complain. But what about the second response? Is it also a response of unbelief? And you're still mad, still complaining? Or is it a, is a response of faith? And if, you, if your countenance is lifted, what lifts it? There's another question of self-discovery. Well, I was really mad and sad too, but I'm not sad and mad any longer. I had a Coke float. Coke floats are one of my favorites in the world. Do you see what I'm saying? You, I, I, I had a Kendor chocolate bar. It's eight bucks, but look, it's the best chocolate in the area. Do you, you hear what I'm saying to you? I went out to eat at uh, 5 and 10. I went out to eat at uh, Chastain. 
I feel better now. I went for a hike. I feel better now. What is it that lifts your countenance? Is it common grace? Or is it Christ? Now see, I could tell you that if you were struggling, and it may or may not do you any good at all. I likely cut you sideways and it wouldn't do you it would never do you any good. But I could come alongside you and say ask questions to help you ask your own soul certain questions for the discovery of what you're living upon. Christ or Brittany. Christ or the accolades at work. And you could do the same for me, right? And you should. Help me determine what I'm living upon. It's a process of prayer and self-discovery. <clears throat> what lifts your countenance? Does God lift you to live upon Him alone? And are you aware of that? It's something to be consciously aware of. I'm not living upon, you know, that good meal, that walk in the uh, park. I'm not living upon that. I'm living upon God. I'm not living upon those compliments. I'm living upon God. I, I appreciate the compliments. But that's not what keeps me going. It's not what I look to to keep me going. It's not what I look to to keep me up. Does God lift you to live upon Him alone? Or do you lift yourself with an easier life and easier relationships? It's an easy thing to do, isn't it? Do you remember, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged you to consciously deny yourself for the sake of another person over the over a long period of time and I and I I, I cited references in the scriptures where I, where where we're taught we would not have any regret to give ourselves for the good of another person consciously deny yourself for the good of another You'll have no regret. But if you do not consciously deny yourself for the sake of another, and you get to the end of your life, you most certainly will have regret. We can easily prop ourselves up with easier life and easier relationships. God will send perhaps another hardship, another trouble, another, another measured trial. He does. David's response to the depths of God's, the depths that God prepared for him in verse 1 is to cry out to God. It's not hard for God to awaken David's soul. 
It, it really, here, it doesn't really need awakening. All David needs to do is increase in faith. His faith is already resting in God. His first response to his trouble is to pray. Do you hear it? Without delay, he prays. Trouble causes David to seek God in verse 1. Trouble causes David to pray for God, pray for help in God in verse 2. Trouble causes uh, David to entreat God for mercy in verse 3. And when he experiences mercy, he most certainly gives that mercy away. He doesn't withhold it. Is it hard for God to awaken your heart? It's a question that needs to be asked. Has your heart grown dull to God? You can recite doctrine. That's another thing. I'm not talking about reciting doctrine. You can recite what you've learned from a book, even from the Bible. But I'm asking, has your heart grown dull to God? Or take the other category, the category that I believe that David is in here. If your heart is not dull at all, but alive to God, and it's hungry for God, when troubles comes, do you become more alive to God? I was alive to God, now I've become more alive to God. I've become a greater. I've, my hunger's increased for God. My appetite for God's mercy has only expanded. And now my, my desire to give mercy away has also expanded. To see, that's what David, that's what God does for David here in this passage. Perhaps you've trained your ears and your heart to be very attentive to the voice of God and your desire is to live in communion with Him. And you're very careful when you're soul. And you're very careful with other souls. And when this trouble comes along, you'll be even more careful with your soul. You'll be even more careful with other souls. That's the point of this passage. When trouble comes, your heart enlarges more for God. Your heart enlarges more for others. Your ears become more in tune to hear what God is saying through His Word. It's not merely that you want to know truth. You want to know the heart of God in this truth for you. You want to know the heart of God in this trouble for you. You want to know your own heart better. When David prays, In verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Now notice that the thought in the second sentence is a repetition of the first sentence with a slight expansion. A slight expansion. Do you see it? Do you suppose David is repeating himself because God is hard of hearing or reticent to hear David's prayer? Got to repeat this to God. God might not have got it the first time. And I need to expand it. Why is he repeating? Why is he expanding the thought? It's for himself, isn't it? It's for his own benefit. It's that David would increase in faith. It's that David would increase in the experience of grace. It's that David would increase in communion with God. And these are the means that God has prepared for him when trouble comes. To pray and then expand his prayer. 
to pray of his thought of God and expand those thoughts of prayer in God. The Puritans called it improving upon the thought of God. Do you improve upon the thought of God and his word when you study it? Do you improve upon a sermon? Do you improve upon a providence? To make good use of hard providences and improve upon them. David repeats the thought and expands it to awaken his own heart to increase in the experience of grace here. We're never to be satisfied with small exercises of faith, nor small experiences of grace, nor just, you know, I'm in communion with God. I don't need to grow. I'm receiving all I need. That's not, that's not God's intent for us when we go through trouble. Do you know Daniel does the same thing in Daniel 9, verses 17 through 19. Daniel prays, Now therefore, O God, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mer- his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon us uh, in a sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my, the place that God normally shows himself is, is vacant now. It's absent. God is not there. What happened? Daniel repeats himself. O oh God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Same pattern as in David's prayer in Psalm 130. He's not standing upon his own goodness. He's standing solely upon the goodness of God. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do you suppose God is not paying attention? Delay not for your own sake. O my God, Because your city and your people are called by your name. We're your covenant people. We're yours. We belong to you, God. For David, it's, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. For Daniel, it's, Lord, listen and climb your ear and hear. Cause your face to shine. Open your eyes and see. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Pay attention and act for the sake of your glory. Don't delay Daniel has zeal for God's glory, and so that same zeal shows up in his prayers, just like it shows up in David's prayer. Richard Sibb says that God regards lukewarm prayers the same way he regards lukewarm people. He spits both out of his mouth. When our soul is fired with zeal for God's glory, our prayers will also be fired with a zeal for God to answer and help. Don't leave me to myself. Don't leave me in my unbelief. God, help me. Our soul is in need. Our families are in need. 
Our church is in need. And the world around us has even greater need. And we should be praying fervently. In trouble, God awakens our soul to our greatest need, the soul's greatest need for the glory of God and the good of others. That's, how do I draw that conclusion? Because that's where David ends in the psalm. He's not self-consumed. And these troubles have made him even less self-consumed than he was. In trouble, God awakens us to the needs of others to get outside ourselves, outside of our own little bubble, outside of our own little world. God cannot and He will not endure us being self-consumed and caught up in our own little world when the world around us is in such great need. Do you have a sense of it? Do you have any burden for the needs of other people? who are enslaved in unbelief and sin, enslaved by Satan to do his will, burdened so for the sake of others. And we're going to remain in a little bubble? We're going to remain among people who we feel comfortable with? I'm not so sure I'm so comfortable with you. You know, It makes me uncomfortable to be with you. We'll never get outside ourselves. And will we have the opportunity to meet needs of people? While Daniel is praying in verse 20, confessing his own sin and the sin of his people, the angel Gabriel comes to him and gives him the understanding that the purpose of the atoning work of Christ is to bring in righteousness. Not Daniel's. God's. And a kind of righteousness is everlasting. It's good for everyone. Let's spread that, you see, by the atoning work of Christ. Let's spread an everlasting righteousness as good as equitable for you. Now we can get along with one another. You see, that's what, that's what this is teaching. Now we have a righteousness by which we can get along not just get along, by which we can hold a communion of love with one another. Because we're both, you and I are both living upon this same righteousness. It's right, it's God righteousness. It's an everlasting righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's not yours. It's God's. And I'll have no other. And you'll have no other. Because we can't live in love with one another with anybody else's righteousness. It's not possible. Let us stop trying to be right and be more concerned about using the righteousness of God to be in communion, a communion of love as the end. Similarly, when David prays in Psalm 130, it's clear from verse 3 that he's keenly aware that he's his need is not to stand on his own righteousness. When trouble comes and you pray, is God awakening you to what you're standing upon? That's a question to be asked. What am I standing upon here? Is it my goodness? Is Is it my righteousness? Or is it God's? If it's my righteousness, I'll certainly create those boundaries we talked about, you see. Because I'll have not the goodness 
nor the mercy to extend myself beyond my boundaries. Is God awakening you to what you're living upon in your trouble? Like he is David here in this passage. Are you living upon God or yourself? In Psalm 60, verse 11, David prays, God, give us help for trouble, for the help of man is useless. Sib says that God shows himself nearest to us when we stand in most need of him. In other words, God, if I show no, if I exemplify no need, if I pray for no need for help from God, God is not near me. <clears throat> God knows our soul best. He sins adversity. And in the midst of adversity, when our soul is wakened more to God, then we come to know what God is really like. Then we come to know the heart of God. Then we come to know the covenant love of God, the unconditional, boundless, bottomless, fathomless, free love of God in Christ. And then because we've received that love, we give it away. We give free love away, not conditions, not boundaries. Conditions are the same thing as boundaries. I'll love you if you do this. Not I'll love you because God has first loved me. In times of trouble, we need a counsel of godly friends. In times of trouble, we need a counsel of godly elders. But even more, we need to intensify our prayers to God when trouble comes. From this passage, are you more convinced of it than ever? In Psalm 69, 1, David prays, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up, come in upon my soul. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. You see, there's, there's that bottomless deep that we talked about earlier. I'm out of my depths. I, don't, I have no footing here. I've come to deep waters where the floods overflow me. What does he do? He prays for help when he's out of his depths. To see. Being in agony, Luke twenty-two forty-four says that Jesus prayed more earnestly. Now, Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is not dull-hearted towards God, is he? Oh, no. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's not insensitive to his need to pray for the glories of God and the good of others, without a doubt. He's not formal in his devotion, is he? Jesus was never formal in his devotion. Was he ever cold? Was he ever cold-hearted toward God or a sinner in need? Oh, no. 
But when his pain and agony increases to the point he is unbearable for him, what does he do? His prayers increase in their intensity. His prayer increases in its fervency. Jesus knows best that God is his refuge and that prayer is the way we increase our faith and learn obedience through the things we suffer. Are you learning obedience through the things you suffer? Circumstantially and relationally. The greater the distress, the greater opportunity for support and sanctification. That's the way we should see it. So let's be more prayerful. I'll summarize a few of William J.'s thoughts closing here. In the greatness of our distress, let us not like Adam and Eve flee from God and seek to hide ourselves from God, but pray. Pray. That was their failure, wasn't it? Instead of praying first, they hid first. Let us not like Cain seek to drown our sorrows in the comforts of common grace, but pray. Do we, do we seek the pleasures of common grace to, to ameliorate, to, what's the word, to, to take the edge off of this pain? Or do we pray? It's not like Jonah for the loss of a little shade. Tell God that we will do well to be angry. Leave me alone. I don't even care if I die. Leave me alone. Leave me in my anger. Not be like Jonah, but pray. It's not like Ephraim and Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to the king of Assyria, and he could, the king of Assyria could not heal him nor cure them of their wound. Go immediately to somebody else. Let us not go immediately to someone else to hear the diseases of our soul, the wounds, the illnesses. Rather, let us pray. Let us say with the church, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He is torn and He will heal us. He is stricken and He will bind us. After 25 years of being alone, Robin Crusoe finds footprints in the sand of the beach. Then he discovers cannibals from a neighboring island have come to kill and eat a man. Crusoe rescues him because he has guns and they don't. He, they don't come back. The cannibals don't come back and offer another sacrifice and eat for a while. Crusoe names this man Friday, my man Friday. For three years, two months, and 19 more days, Robinson Crusoe and his companion live on the island until they both are found and rescued. But each, each of those three years, two months, and 19 days, every day, Robinson Crusoe is teaching Friday to learn to read from the Bible. Wow. And he tells him 
the stories of God's providence in his life by which he would come and tell Friday about Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Finally, Friday is converted. Twenty-eight years, two months, nineteen days on a desert island, alone. And one soul is converted because you begin to read providence and God's work through providence in a way to be useful and alive and rescue a soul in danger. When trouble comes, may we be careful not to run from God, but to run to God. May we be careful not to make shipwreck of our lives and drift aimlessly through life from one common grace to another, from one friend to another. Careful, careful. May we not live like castaways caring for no one nor being cared about by anyone or cared for by anyone. Let's learn to read providence better. The work of God in our troubles. May we ponder the multitude of infinitely wise providences guiding us through the whole life to bring us to what? To the one moment we resign to do the will and live by the ways of God. The ways of mercy, the ways of grace. Receiving grace and mercy to give grace and mercy away to needy people to see it. Isn't it marvelous? When trouble comes, may we learn to pray more fervently and give ourselves more fully to the glory of God and the good of others than we had before the trouble came. Let us mark it. Let us mark. Let us chart the course of God's work in our life. A hard providence came. I received greater mercy. I gave more mercy away after then than ever in my life. more kind, more patient, more loving, without conditions than ever before. I doubt we'll ever get rid of all the conditions. I doubt it. I doubt we'll ever get rid of all the boundaries we set. But perhaps we'll lessen them over the course of a life and give ourselves more fully to rescue others from their sin. May the Lord use our experience of mercy to redeem Grace Church out of all our unbelief and out of all our sin. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for these, uh, this little bit of time that we've shared together. It feels like a moment, but a moment to me. And I treasure, I've, I've sought to treasure up every moment that you have worked through your word for the sake of your people to redeem us from all our troubles and all our sins. Not, not to redeem us from all our troubles, but teach us in our troubles to redeem us from our sins, especially the sin of unbelief. 
Lord, help us. Help. Robinson Crusoe's prayer. Help. Help God. I'm in desperate need. Help us, God. We're in desperate need. Help. Teach us to pray together for help with one another. Amen.